0: We might find comfort in accepting the cross that God allows right now with this attitude of acceptance that they come and go, and then you get to decide what to do with them. So not trying to control so much whether they come, but being able to respond to them. It's not this giving in and saying, well, you know, I just, I just pick up my skin. I just pull out my hair and that's the cross that's meant for me. Instead, I'm going to commit, I'm going to use all these strategies. I'm going to commit to those things. And then we find that the urge can start to go away on its own. Hey
1: everyone, welcome to the resolutions podcast, where we like to turn difficult topics into helpful conversations. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. Today's show is going to cover a very common behavioral health issue that is not only perplexing, but the information regarding treatment and clinicians who specialize in this arena are not easily accessed or even readily available. Today, we are covering body-focused repetitive behaviors, or BFRBs. Now. While that broad category may not sound familiar to you, BFRBs include problematic habitual behaviors like skin-picking, hair-pulling, lip-biting, nail-biting, etc. These are more than just nervous practices for a significant portion of the population. Uh, For some, these behaviors alter a person's appearance and induce a stifling sense of shame. So. In an effort to raise awareness and offer help and hope, this episode of the Resolutions Podcast dives into the mystery of BFRBs and explains the beginnings of these behaviors, how these behaviors become embedded in our impulses, and how they can be overcome. Uh, We think this show will be one of our best. Be sure to stay tuned for the wrap up of this podcast. Our co host, Michael Gum, will relay show note information and tell you how to best share this episode. So, with that, we now drop in on a conversation with one of the leading experts in BFRB treatment, Dr. Natalie Bry. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Bry. Dr. Natalie Bry earned her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee in 2017. She completed her postdoctoral internship and fellowship in child clinical psychology at Children's Mercy, Kansas City, with specialties in behavioral pediatrics and integrated healthcare. She is currently with Immaculate Heart of Mary Counseling Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. Dr. Natalie Bry, welcome to the Resolutions Podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Yeah, it is a pleasure to have you with us, Natalie. Uh, Today's topic is Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, or BFRBs. Uh, But before we dive into that subject matter, let's let our listeners get to know you. So, Natalie, uh, talk a little bit about your background and your, your pathway for becoming a specialist in this particular arena of behavioral science.
0: Sure, absolutely. So I was really always interested in the mind. I remember being young and reading through old psychology textbooks just looking at the pictures of the brain and wondering about how our brains worked and why and then especially the things that can give us trouble, you know, how our minds can trip us up. So that's sort of how the interest started out. Like what can what can go wrong for us and I wanted to help people fix that. You know, let's see how we can either live with this thing or make it better. So I started out in grad school and that was in in Milwaukee with neuropsychology, you know, just really brain focused and looking at the different ways that our development can deviate from what's hoped for or what's expected. Um, And then from there, I became more and more interested in child clinical psychology, pediatric psychology, Mm. anything that was medical related and how that intersects with our mental health. So I started Mm. to learn that they're really inseparable as much as, you know, we, we sometimes want to separate or that there's that stigma of mental health issues. It's really all connected. So um, part of my interest in, what we're talking about today stemmed from that just kind of medical interest. And then the other part was this kind of providential landing at university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, where they had a special training clinic. One of the only ones in the nation at that time that specifically Mm -hmm. helped to treat patients who had BFRBs. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that was things like hair pulling, um, skin picking, nail biting things like that and that was under supervision of some of the experts and there was this team approach and we got to watch other student clinicians learn and um, work with clients that had this range of behaviors and um, then do it on our own with our clients as we were learning and everyone was learning together and um, it was just really neat to use this very specific approach created for these patients. It wasn't medicine, which was their only option before. Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of work with their environment and with their their private thoughts and their urges when it came to these behaviors. Um, and so that was that was kind of the beginning of it all. And I took that training then with me where I went next on my internship and postdoc and now here at Immaculate Heart. So just kind of trying to look at the the whole person this holistic approach to medical and mental health when we're looking at this issue.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, and I think it's important for, for me, for our listeners to hear that. One of the first things they teach us as clinicians, as therapists is man, know your limits. And what we're talking about today is just so far out of my wheelhouse. I worked with a lot of clients who have what we are calling body focused repetitive behaviors. But unfortunately in my immediate area, uh, there were, there were virtually no clinicians that I could refer to. We're just now discovering uh, some specialists in this area, which has been helpful for, for clients who can get more specialized care uh, in that arena, but, but I'm here to learn as well today. And we're going to have on our show notes, uh, you know, any helpful resources that you want to supply our our listeners with Natalie as well. So let's start with the basic diagnostics here, uh, body focused, repetitive behaviors or BFRBs. What exactly are we talking about?
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. So those things that a lot of people are going to call a bad habit but that cause more interference than just a bad habit. So Hmm. hair pulling, also known as trichotillomania, skin picking or nail picking, um, and then any kind of biting, nail biting or cheek biting or lip biting, those are the most common, um, probably with trichotillomania and skin picking being the most most, um, frequent that I see. So Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: those are the diagnoses, Um, and then underneath that, you know, I mean, hair, hair picking or hair pulling hair is everywhere. And so people can pull their hair repetitively from anywhere on their body. Um, most commonly from the scalp or the face area that doesn't mean just pulling for cosmetic reasons. So sometimes people say, well, I I do, do I have trichotillomania? No, that's, it's more repetitive. There's an urge involved, um, to the point that it's noticeable to others it's causing a problem so when when we talk mm-hmm. about hair pulling it's something that goes beyond what you know it, it's something that causes harm usually or causes distress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes people will pull other another person's hair or a pet's hair without intending harm that still can count as a repetitive behavior disorder. So it's, okay. it's pretty interesting when you get down to the details of it. Um, yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, and again, it's also the, uh, if it's not the hair pulling, it's the, it's the picking aspect mm-hmm. of that, of that too. use the word common, some are more common than others within this particular diagnostic. Uh, I'm going to shift that word to a broader spectrum. Um, how common are these behaviors among the general population? I mean, do do we have any data? I mean, it would seem to me mm-hmm. like it's pretty widespread. But do we mm-hmm. do we have what data do we have?
0: Yeah, and the data we have are probably underestimates. Um, with hair pulling about three percent, even though up to about ten or fifteen percent of adolescents and young adults will report pulling their hair for non cosmetic reasons, but about three or 4% are to the point where it's a problem. Um, and then skin picking a little bit less, again, probably an underestimate because you're only getting the people who are either checking yes on a survey or they're presenting for treatment. And we, we think more so in females, but again, females are also gonna be more likely to present and, and seek treatment for these things. Um, so all altogether, you're going to see estimates like one in 20 have some kind of repetitive behavior going on. Um, but I, I really think that it's a lot more. I think people are just not going Uh to admit to that skin picking to the point where they're, they're causing their own scratch or wound, um, or getting infections Mm -hmm. because they're picking at their skin or they're not going to report. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I bite my lips so badly that they're bleeding and I'm avoiding social interactions because this has gotten so out of hand. Um, And again, a lot of people might pull or, or bite their cheeks or pick at their nails, but the body focused repetitive behaviors that are problems are going to involve this sense of tension, increasing tension beforehand, and then some sense Mm -hmm. of relief afterward. And that relief is really tricky because that's what creates That sense of shame, like, do I like doing this? And if I like doing it, Mm. I don't want to tell somebody else about that. So I'm not going to report Mm -hmm. that I do this. Mm -hmm.
1: That's that's a really good breakdown. Um, Let me ask you this: Uh, I'm 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 going to give you an observation and then try to tie in a question to it. So. It's my understanding that uh, a lot of BFRBs are commonly overlooked as being, you know, to the level of seriousness or shame inducing and things that you just described because they're often associated with nervous energy that's connected to ADHD. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes then if you're, if you're not aware of the, the difficulties that this type of cyclic behavior causes, Mentally, because it just—it's—it's a cycle. It sort of feeds itself. Um, What you end up doing is you try to treat it through more common ADHD treatment strategies. And uh, so, my question, uh, comment on that observation. If I'm wrong, tell me. Uh, But my my question is, you know, how early might we see these type of behaviors begin to manifest in a person? Uh, in childhood and how do we begin to distinguish it from between, you know, nervous energy that a kid has not being able to keep his legs still and he's tapping his foot, Mm uh, you know, or, um, some self soothing things that children do, like maybe sucking their thumb, uh, you know, help us out a little bit. How, how early might we see these Mm -hmm. might we see these behaviors manifest and how do we, how do we identify a true, uh, BRFB?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. And, and they can be hard to answer, but I'll tell you what we do know. So the average age of onset is about age 13 or so when it could be classified as a real difficulty or disorder um, by a therapist. So age 13 or so is where we're seeing age of onset. Before this, you might see signs, lots of hair twirling in younger kids and things that typically, you know, parents might notice, but they, maybe they they don't, uh, they don't really try to intervene and not saying that they should either, because a lot of people who twirl their hair, that's all they'll ever do. So age 13, I've seen it earlier and definitely there's, there's case reports out there of babies having hair pulling disorder or younger Mm. kids, you know, having, having skin picking or they, they pick their scab and they pick their scab and it's covered up with a band-aid and they keep picking at it and so that's that kind of um, that perseveration that then you know you asked how do you identify when it's a problem if it's starting to cause significant distress across areas of the person's life. So let's say there's a bald spot that's created or mm-hmm. a lot of times there's um, pulling along a part or they're missing all of their eyelashes on an eye. Um, or they spend a lot of time covering up scabs, or, you know, maybe teenage girls will use makeup to cover up um, any skin picking that they've been doing. If it's at that point and it's causing distress and it's interfering and it's noticeable to others, that's where it kind of crosses over from, you know, you're you're pulling a few hairs, you're breaking off a few hairs kind of like you're jiggling your leg, you know, or you're clicking your pen when Mm -hmm. it's causing some bodily harm. And it's like, I can't stop. I want to try, but I can't stop. Mm -hmm. You can't Mm -hmm. just change it with willpower anymore. And it's causing mental distress. That's where we identify it as, yeah, this is, this is probably a difficulty that um, needs addressed. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: sometimes there's a stressor that can trigger, you know, around age 13, a lot of things can be triggered because the kids have gone through puberty and there's a lot of change happening in their life and there's a lot of social pressure put on them. Um, But most of the time, there doesn't really seem to be a reason for the start um, because there are certainly those cases where we can't find a trigger. And maybe it's just this early coping style that has gone beyond um, just a, a habit. Kind of like clicking mm-hmm. a pin, like I said. Um, and so for parents to identify that this is an issue, oftentimes it's been going on for quite a while to get to that point. So that's what's hard about it. It's usually ingrained by that point. Mm. Mm.
1: That is so helpful for you to explain that that way, because as a clinician in my area, we talk about integrated and we'll talk about this, you know, uh, the way that we integrate different aspects of faith and, and into uh, certain types of treatment strategies and theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially we work a lot with at risk teens here in the local mm-hmm. context we're sort of trained to look for these skeletons in the closet. We're we're trained to look into as best as we can the subconscious to explore for childhood trauma, for duress, for uh you know uh, a catastrophic event or in, in long time episodes and so in our minds uh speaking for myself I should say in my mind and I think other clinicians you know we uh we automatically think okay probably what is manifesting is a survival coping type of behavior. Um, You don't have to to teach kids how to do survival coping. Uh, They're resilient. They know how to do that. Uh, And so oftentimes the survival coping shifts into maladaptive behavior that undercuts their potential over time. Mm And we can talk about that because I'm interested in um, what is the continuum uh, for degree of impediment, I guess I could say with that. Um, but you're telling us it's like, no, there doesn't have to be any sort of duress or trauma stress that's surfacing. It can just simply start as a, uh, you know, as a, as an action that turns into a habit that then becomes something that is, you know, diagnostically a disorder. So am am I right? Did I catch that?
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think usually even there's not a triggering event that we can find and this will give parents a lot of relief as, as I'm talking to them, I say they're, you know, they, maybe they're prone to anxiety, but a kid who's prone to anxiety could just as easily, you know, fidget in their chair as they could start to pull their hair And so there's really no difference other than twirling around in your chair doesn't really cause any physical damage where hair pulling does. And so it's like, they just pick Mm -hmm. the wrong, the wrong coping style. Again, not always, but usually it's just kind of, Mm -hmm. it can be genetics. It can Mm -hmm. be, you have this biological or psychological kind of vulnerability um, to -hmm. some of these behaviors, kind of sensory, maybe the kids who are more sensorily stimulated and, then they tend to go for their body maybe instead of something else. I think it could be poor coping. It it probably is poor coping to not have other resources that you're going for instead of turning towards your body. But um, when it is poor coping, it's, it's poor response to stress and anxiety, even really mild stress, not necessarily trauma, but Mm -hmm. maybe just Mm -hmm. feeling socially awkward, or, or having a stressful day at work for adults. Um, Even just, if you like the feeling of breaking off hair, sometimes that Mm -hmm. can get out of hand, then it started with just Mm -hmm. kind of liking the feeling just the way a kid might stroke a stuffed animal. Um, But they end up being sort of rewarded by this breaking off and the feeling and that's their coping mechanism so people call it a nervous habit but it's more than that right because now it has this there's this cycle of reward and then anytime they're bored anytime they maybe maybe they feel like they do need to control something in their life Um, but the fact that that behavior was kind of a go-to in the past now makes it more likely in those stressful situations so I'd be wrong to say it's not really driven by stress because I think it, it can be affected by stress. Absolutely. But um, it's just that it, it started off maybe as something that was less severe and now it's their go-to and it has bad consequences.
1: Yeah. I, and I just imagine the collective listening audience breathing a deep sigh of relief <laughs> right now. Because, you know, I have actually been in, in classroom settings and received, you know, um, training, counts you know, CEs, uh, and this has been some years ago, but where, you know, what, what you're talking about now is just being classified as a BFRB has been sort of lumped in with self-harm, cutting, mm-hmm. you know, burning oneself, those sort of things. And of course, those uh type of maladaptive behaviors and coping they are directly related to a lot of of uh trauma stress and and um you know the the more catastrophic events or duress that that people grow up uh you know having to deal with uh but uh so I wanna just really underscore this very uh relieving um uh, information that you just shared with us is. You know, it is serious because of the way that it does, you know, it does pull together both the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system neurologically, but it's not something that we have to go into, uh, the subconscious looking for some sort of unchecked childhood trauma. It's just, Hey, this can be uh, a way of coping that just really turns into something that, uh, that is beyond difficult. Yeah. It's, it is something that, as you described it, it really uh, interrupts uh, the flow of wellness in a person's life. Let's approach this issue now uh, from two different perspectives. Uh, we're we're going to have listeners who are adults. They're, they're well beyond their teen years. Uh, they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s or older. And, and now they're recognizing okay, I, I didn't know how to define this, but this is me. And so I want us to address, okay, if you're recognizing that you're caught up in a in a cycle of, of body-focused repetitive behavior, I want us to talk about, okay, well, what can you begin to do, you know, as far as you know, the, uh, the intervention. Yeah. The old saying is, uh, you know, if you have a wild horse, what do you do? Do you build a bigger fence or do you tame the horse? And the answer is mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, so on that level, as a, as a neurologically mature adult, I would guess that there are certain steps. And then the second perspective that I want us to also include as we, as we go is, okay, well, what about a parent, uh, who is picking up on this behavior, Uh, And it's, it's early on. There's some correction you can do. Uh, Maybe it's though they're in their teen years and how do parents step in and guide without shaming, without guilting, you know, those sort of things. So Mm -hmm. uh, which of those you want to start with first?
0: Yeah, let's start with, let's start with kids. And then we, cause we can add on then how you would help an adult or as an adult, how you would start to approach this difficulty because it's normally the same approach that you would take for a kid plus some more because now adults can think abstractly.
1: Great. So okay.
0: And it'll be it's a long answer and you just feel free to interrupt me because there's so many pieces gotcha. to it. It's simpler than it sounds when I'm talking it all out cuz you take it step by step, but I I would always start with learning about the problem first. So mm. as as the patient if I'm struggling with BFRB I would want to learn, I would want to educate or be educated by someone who knows about it and understand maybe the why and normalize it a little bit. So as I'm working with my clients, normalizing and educating is my first, very first look. So I'm coming in with this understanding that people are ashamed or embarrassed about the habit disorder, um, which is kind of my, my short way of thinking of it, these habit disorders. Um, but any kind of body focused, repetitive behavior, they're not going to want to talk to me about, but they're coming because it's caused significant interference in their life. They'll report that it's really difficult or impossible to stop. So they feel defeated. Even, even if the behavior itself is very purposeful rather than automatic. So there's kind of two types of repetitive behaviors. And one is more kind of mindless and the other one might be more purposeful. Um, Not to say they Mm -hmm. want to do it, but they know they're aware that they're doing it, but they can't seem to stop. And so understanding that that's normal for body focused, repetitive behaviors, that they're not the only one who kind of, you know, pulls their hair out mindlessly. And then they're looking over and there's a pile of hair there. And they're also not the only one who's going into the bathroom mirror and pulling out with the tweezers. And so just opening up that you're not the only one. There's a whole community of people that feel ashamed, but maybe unnecessarily. And that sense of relief that you get from picking or from pulling or from biting, that's kind of like scratching an itch, right? It's just, it's causing you more damage because it's this particular behavior. So normalizing and then telling them, Hey, this is a very powerful cycle that's happened in your brain you know, you think that these, these strategies are soothing, but they're not really soothing. And that's because that behavior over time, it has this funny, this funny way of being maybe even pleasurable or relieving, right? Or else we wouldn't have started it in the first place. It is kind of soothing in the short run. And so then your brain is shooting out some dopamine, the reward chemical, yes. right? Over okay. time, you've got this association that's built up between the behavior and then feeling a little bit better, at least in the immediate. And so that's reinforced the behavior. And that's also normal. It's not really your fault that this has developed. It's just, Mm -hmm. that's how our brains work. And Mm -hmm. that's the first big piece, the education and helping them feel, all right, this is, this is kind of how this behavior works in my brain. I didn't do this to myself as much as my brain kind of did this to me.
1: Let me jump in. I, yeah. Let me ask you this, uh, because again, I want to separate this out as much as I can from what would normally be addictions counseling, Yeah. because, you know, habits and addictions that that's that that's, there's sound like synonymous things in a person's, Mm -hmm. you know, vocabulary and and their mind, but, but we're talking about something that needs to be distinctive here, Mm -hmm. but some of the overlap of that, especially as you brought in the dopamine release, you know, um, you know, there's the old example that if you, if you burned your hand on a hot iron, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you would learn that quickly and you would not touch, you would not make that same mistake again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm if that iron made you feel good before you were burned there would be a struggle there especially for the the dopamine that is the that's the pleasure mode of the brain and it can not only reward you but it can prompt you and so again it's that's an extreme example but mm-hmm. it does play into what you're talking about because you know the uh, and and I'll let you keep going here, but mm-hmm. uh, you know the 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 burn, so to speak, is you know the the embarrassment of how that impacts your physical presentation of your body, how people see you, also the shame that's mm-hmm. that's underlying it. But there is a pleasure that mm-hmm. precedes it that is triggered or not triggered, but it's reinforced by mm-hmm. dopamine. So mm-hmm. I just, I wanted our listeners to, to really catch that. So am I, am I right? Am I listening to you correctly?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You've got this urge to do the behavior and you've got the immediate sense of relief in, in most cases. And then you've got kind of the Almost immediate sense of like, yep, I was kind of soothed by that, and then later you mm-hmm. you realize, oh man, you know, I mm-hmm. I just did this to myself again, and so then then the shame comes from it and affects mm-hmm. self esteem, but it's got that kind of medical component to it that makes mm-hmm. it tricky and that makes it you can compare in some ways to an addiction, but there there's a really distinct line there. Yeah. Um, so yep, yeah, I I would agree.
1: All right. So thank you for letting me interrupt. So learning, educating, normalizing, helping people understand, please, please proceed.
0: Yes, absolutely. So disrupting the behavior with children as with adults, it's really important to know whether and when the behavior is that more automatic that I talked about, kind of outside of awareness. You know, you, you reach up, maybe there's skin picking on the face or the legs. You reach up and you're, you're picking at your skin. And then all of a sudden you realize you're doing it. That first part was out of your awareness. It's called automatic. And then focused is I have this urge, I'm gonna do it. You're, you're sort of giving into it while knowing that it's happening. And sometimes age factors into that. Um, Although most of the time, people of all ages are going to have some of both types, but with the younger kids, they may be pretty unaware of what they're doing. Um, And so for that reason, treating this in children involves more of what's called stimulus control. So arranging the environment in a way that kind of blocks the behavior, it's a very behavioral treatment. And that would be things like um, wearing mittens at night. Let's say there's hair pulling or skin picking that happens at night. Okay. Let's put on mittens. And then at least you're bringing it out of that kind of unfocused, mindless behavior back into your consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe pulling out eyelashes is an issue. And so then Mm -hmm. I would instruct the child or the adult, but to wear an eye mask at night, because then Mm -hmm. you have to move the eye mask Mm -hmm. to get to your eyes. And now it's, now it's more focused within Mm -hmm. your awareness behavior Mm -hmm. and so then that disrupts it right that gets in the way of the cycle so it's important to know what are the things that what are the contexts that trigger the polling or the picking No, is it the car is it school time is it work is it stressful phone calls is it when you've had to work all day and you're at the end of a long day is it the couch is it the television And that's called a functional behavioral assessment, where you're looking at all the different pieces of what the context is, where the behavior is more likely to occur, and then tracking, oh, okay, this is where it's happening. I'm seeing patterns. Now I can work with my therapist. I can brainstorm some changes that I could make. So maybe when I'm watching TV, now I'm going to sit on the floor. Let's see if that changes things. Mm -hmm. And then the second part that's effective for children and adults, but that we teach to children is first and foremost is learning an alternative response to that behavior. So let's say they're now aware they're about to engage in hair pulling. What can they do instead to occupy their hands, for example, or to change the situation in some way? So the competing response for for most picking and pulling behavior is just going to be clenching the fist lightly. And what that does is it brings the urge into awareness really at the forefront. And so now you're clenching your fists and you feel that kind of pull to reach your hand up there, right? But you're resisting it a little bit Yeah. and you're noticing, Oh, I want to, how long can I sit with that? And will that urge go away? And so what kids start to notice is, oh, that urge that starts to go away. If I hold for about a minute, usually that's Mm. when we see a decrease. And if I do that over and over, I'm interrupting this little cycle of reinforcement that my brain liked. And now I'm finding something different to do. Mm. And if I'm experiencing the urge a lot while I'm sitting here watching television and I'm having to clench my fists a lot, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go get a drink. And I'm going to see if that interrupts it. Mm-hmm. So doing something else, it's just a different response than mm-hmm. giving into that urge every time. And usually for kids, that's going to do it for them if they're younger, because they don't yet have the abstract thought that it takes to engage in more of the acceptance and commitment therapy mm-hmm. approach, which is the other component of evidence-based therapy for repetitive behavior problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that is super helpful. Um, how long does it take? If you, you know, on average, I know each person is mm-hmm. different, you know, but we're—I'm sure we're having people who are tuning in and they're thinking, okay, you know, Dr. Bry, Natalie said, if I if I practice this consistently, if I'm taking it from the automatic into the focused, I'm noticing patterns. And I'm developing an alternative response, and then I'm I'm purposeful, I'm intentional with that, even if it's just for a sixty minute sixty minutes sixty second disruption. And I'm teaching, you know, my my brain an alternative response. How long can they expect to do that before they start seeing a more, um, you know, just a a more natural? roll into that type of a, Mm -hmm. uh, I want to say compulsive or impulsive behavior that is Mm -hmm. not in any way, shape or form harmful. Do I need to rephrase that? Does that make sense? Is it 30 days? Could it be 60 days? Could it be 90 Mm -hmm. a year? Um, Talk to us a little Mm -hmm. about that.
0: Yeah, I think it really depends on how ingrained this habit is and how much that they use this response for the different stressors in their life. So there could be a lot of variables. If you're an adult and you've been struggling with this for many years and it's pretty much your coping mechanism for any stressor, I think Mm -hmm. it'll take longer. Mm -hmm. The behavior modification plus the acceptance and commitment therapy approach is designed to take about 10 or 12 weeks. And in the research, that's what, get some pretty good results that are lasting for people and that's a really targeted therapy approach where you're starting out with that assessment and the stimulus control that arranging of the environment to get in the way and then the competing response and doing the actions to get in the way and that's maybe 3-4 weeks so for for kids you can really if the parents are on board if we have good social support kids can start to see change really quickly depending mm. on good of a job we're doing finding the times that they're engaging in this Mm -hmm. behavior Mm -hmm. and how much we can give them to interrupt so they might need fidgets at school they might need you know something else in their hands that's giving them some sensory input and they're going to need help finding some different coping mechanisms too well what else what else can you do can you go outside can you play with the dog do you need sleep do you need a drink of water Mm -hmm. for adults then and i'll talk i can talk much more about this too but you add in this acceptance and commitment therapy component and yeah
1: let's let's go there that's that's a great segue please
0: sure so the habit reversal so competing response stimulus control plus acceptance and commitment therapy in combination is what's found to be effective in treating any any habit disorder in adults so these repetitive behaviors have this cognitive and emotional component to it more difficult for the young kids to understand. So it's really only been applied to adolescents and to adults, Um, but ACT as it's called, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy ACT is learning to notice, but then not respond to that urge to engage in the behavior and rather than fight it, rather than hate it and want it to go away and be frustrated that you have the urge, kind of learning to let your mind accept that the urge is there without accepting the pulling itself. So act treats the thoughts and the emotional components of those body focused, repetitive behaviors, because people learn through act to be more present focused or aware. So kind of that mi- the mindfulness that you hear about and being aware of the thoughts and feelings that are happening inside of you and really tuning in and then learning to accept that, okay, yes, Those feelings are what they are and I have them, but I can still commit to changing my behavior and I can do the thing that's important to me. I don't have to give into my urges every time. And so I spend a lot of time with adults, helping them to clarify their values and what's important to them. And nowhere on that list is hair pulling or skin picking ever. Mm -hmm. That's not important, but yet they spend so much time engaging in that behavior. And so if as adults, we can clarify values, then we have a choice to make, right? When an urge comes up. So if I have an urge to pull my hair, I might think, okay, is this important to me? Can I sit with this urge and can I let it be there? And instead of thinking, nope, it's too strong. I have to pull my hair. This was too stressful of a day. And letting that drive my behavior, I can learn to respond better to that urge itself, not to get rid of it and not to hate it, but just to say, okay, self-compassion here. I have this urge. I'm still going to make a choice to let that urge be there and to go on with what's important to me, which right Mm -hmm. now is, you know, making my dinner, or maybe it's calling my friend. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of a shift in thinking for people because they have to, they have to realize, okay, this is, it's a really difficult behavior to control, but it's not really about control. It's about letting the feeling be there
1: mm-hmm.
0: without trying to strangle it. And then instead doing what's important to me.
1: That's fantastic. And, and it's brilliant the way that that flows in a way that's easy to understand. It's rational. You know, it, it makes sense. So one of the things that, that we have found is so important you know especially with love, with forms of of CBT or even motivational interviewing you know where you're trying to not just disrupt but it is the uh you know you're trying to sidestep the level of shame and what we would say mm-hmm. are automatic negative thoughts that just begin to generate in a person's mind is uh you know we we encourage them let's say it out loud you know and mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about the cognitions that you're teaching you know, an adult, especially, but children, teens, you know, as you're, you're, you've, you've got the behavior modification in place. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, how do we step into the ACT, the ACT end of this? Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on, you know, them being able to verbalize or journal, you know, the, the things that you just shared with us, the perspectives, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's a leading question. I, I believe that, that our, our psyches recognize our voice automatically as the most common and trusted voice that it knows. And so therefore our guard goes down and, and we're able to speak good, important truth as opposed to condemnation deep into our, in our psyche and our health. So mm-hmm. is the type of practice that you described uh, is it helpful to do that verbally? Is it helpful to do that in a journaling way so that you can see in your own handwriting what's what's your thoughts there on that?
0: yeah it's that's a great question. and the the manualized treatment for trichotillomania for skin picking, this kind of like ten to twelve week um, program, if for lack of a better word that we use incorporates a lot of journaling and tracking. One of the worksheets that we use with our clients in treating these behaviors is called making friends with your urges, the making friends with your urges form. And on it, since it's such a, it's kind of a shocking title for a page and clients are usually like make friends with my urges. Are you kidding me? I don't want to do that. I don't want the urge, but it's all about writing down. All right. Once you allowed yourself to sit with this urge, even if it was for 30 or 60 seconds, what did your mind start to do with that urge? Once you just let it be there, did you start to observe it? Did you wonder about it? Did you kind of wonder where it came from? Most people will say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I started thinking about how, man, this urge is really strong today and I wonder if this contributed to it. So they're, they're starting to see the things that happened earlier in their day or they're learning just as good. They're learning that I can, sit with this urge and not have to respond to it. This is really new for me. And there's this sort of sense of empowerment that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And I've had several clients that go on to explore other insights, how this applies to just their thoughts about self-control in general. Wow. Okay. Telling myself no in this area actually applies to a lot of other areas Mm -hmm. of my life Mm -hmm. that I can have this feeling or this desire and, and even in areas of morality, which this isn't a moral issue, um, it's more of a habit issue. But, but in areas of morality, wow, I can say no to this thing, even though I want it. it doesn't make it right for me to have, and that can be really eye opening for people too. So I think there is a lot of insight to be gained from tracking, from noting patterns, and then from just jotting down what people are finding as they're engaging in the exercises. Mm -hmm. And then later too, as they're, as they're seeing the results, eyelashes grow back in about two weeks. So that's for somebody who hasn't had eyelashes for months, that's really motivating. And then they're writing about that. And they're saying, Hey, look, I, I only spent five minutes total today Mm. pulling out my eyelashes and last, Mm -hmm. you know, the last day it was 15 minutes. So they're seeing their progress on paper too, which is mm-hmm. really, really encouraging.
1: Is there space in there to, uh, you know, for for your clients, uh, for people who are addressing this behavior modification, the ACTS model, those two merging, uh, is there space in there to also, you know, connect, hey, what are the emotions that are associated with these times where I'm spotting a pattern?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of our worksheets again, because this has been studied, this therapy approach has been studied so much that we try to cater to what is the most beneficial to the clients and writing down in that functional assessment that I talked about earlier, part of that is saying, all right, not only what's the context, but how are other people reacting? How am I feeling before? How am I feeling after? And so they're writing down, oh man, I'm, I'm seeing there's a ton of relief that's coming after, for example, not always, maybe it's distress that comes after, but they're noticing not just the urge, but their feelings about the urge and they're writing those down Mm -hmm. and there's space for them to write down what feelings happened before, how -hmm. they felt during the polling and how they felt after. And that can help us too. I'm glad you brought that up because that helps us too, to talk with them about what might you be seeking through this? Hmm. Are you seeking to be soothed? Are you, you know, are you bored and you're seeking to kind of fill that bored Mm -hmm. space? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you angry beforehand? And you're doing this as kind of a frustrated process Mm -hmm. because it's not always self-soothing. It's not always anxiety that relates to it, but normally there is some kind of a feeling Mm -hmm. that's associated before, during and after. And so if we can help clients to understand that, then, you can address a feeling in a lot of different ways, not just with a body focused, repetitive behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Let me, let me shift this here a little bit. Natalie, you and I share a Christian faith and before I hit record, we were, we were really connecting, you know, on that and, and how we love to integrate, you know, uh, that particular, you know, type of faith tradition, Christianity into, uh, you know, our sessions with clients who are open to that, who are requesting that. So, Let me see if I can, if I can lead in here to another area that I, uh, another, another aspect of this that I would love to get your commentary on. So. Um, there's a couple of passages, uh, that come to mind that are, that are pretty, one's, one's pretty common in a counseling room if you're seeking Christian, uh, psychotherapy. And, uh, of course, that comes out of, uh, Second Corinthians. It's a book in the Bible. Um, and, uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 10, the admonition there is to be mindful of your thoughts and to take every thought captive, you know, to, uh, to being congruent and synchronized with the mind of Christ, with what Jesus thinks about it. That's, that's my paraphrase, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, prior to the second letter that we have that was written to this particular church in Corinth, uh, the first letter has uh, really some strong corrective language in it uh, because there were some patterns going on in that church uh, that were really immoral, and some of those were were uh, sexual immorality that I think most people who are not familiar with the Bible would be shocked by. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. so so the the Apostle Paul, who plants this church, he is he's really leaning in hard on these behaviors that have become so common. But the interesting thing is, is that he applies, you know, what he is, what he's, uh, the admonition in a way that it covers not just sort of the immoral things that we know are outside, you know, the boundaries of of God's righteousness, right, wrong, these are wrong things, but they're also the in, the amoral things, the things that are not, they're sort of morally neutral. And, uh, you know, Paul comments to this. He says, you know, there, all things are lawful, all things might be okay for me, but I want to be sure not to bring myself under the control of any certain thing. And so he, in this particular part of this first letter, it's in chapter six, he speaks to how are we reframing the way we're thinking about the things we're engaging in, our behaviors, That can easily take hold and override us in a moment. And so, uh, you know, with that sort of a context, talk to us a little bit about, you know, with, with your clients who are, who are Christian, they're open for that sort of integration into their therapeutic treatment. How, how do you merge, you know, what are some of the things with, with Christian faith that you're able to merge into? Well, it's a really solid, uh, you know, treatment strategy here that you've outlined so far.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I would say for, especially for faith integrated therapists, we're always trying to find new ways to connect with the client on the Mm -hmm. other side of that too. There's they, they've got, they're coming in with the behavioral difficulty of whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be repetitive behavior, but anything. And then they learn, oh man, I can incorporate, my faith into this too how can i do that teach me and they're normally excited about it so then we get excited about it you say, how can we connect here and i think what you were saying about taking every thought captive that's in that letter to the corinthians that that relates so strongly to mindfulness or to present focus or awareness and that's already a big focus in the world of psychology and so that's an easy bridge to build and it ties right into acceptance and commitment therapy they lend themselves to this faith integrated therapy for body focused repetitive behaviors and here's what i mean with the acceptance and commitment piece of it which incorporates the present focus mindfulness keeping thoughts captive it it emphasizes that our suffering is universal mm-hmm. and it's normal and it's inevitable and we can't really control if it comes just like somebody with a body focused repetitive behavior can't necessarily control if that urge appears so from that faith based perspective we might find comfort in in thinking about moving forward with this attitude of accepting the cross that that god allows right now without giving up or struggling or getting so frustrated still keeping in mind okay i I have to kind of be the, be the king of my own emotions and thoughts, but with this attitude of acceptance that they come and go, and then you get to decide what to do with them. So not trying to control so much, whether they come, but being able to respond to them. Mm -hmm. And that is made much more meaningful knowing how Christ suffered. Mm -hmm. So I've had clients say, well, maybe I can, I can offer this suffering as a prayer with this sense of knowing that God is going to help me through it. Mm. And see this through. And so that's a really active acceptance, right? It's not this giving in and saying, "Well, you know, I just I just pick up my skin, I just pull up my hair, and that's the cross that's meant for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead noticing those thoughts as they're coming in and saying, "Oh hey, that's I'm having that thought just a minute.
1: Mm. I
0: don't think that lines up with my faith, actually. I don't think that lines up with this valued life that I'm being called to. and And we don't want to accept the urge at first. a repetitive behavior disorder you either want to satisfy the urge or get rid of it and those are seen as the two options but the more you try to push it away Mm. the more you're paying attention to it Mm -hmm, (laughs) and and we know attention feeds things and so you're you're Mm -hmm. dealing with this problem that maybe god doesn't intend for you to have um maybe you're making it worse for yourself by trying to get rid of it on your own because you can't control the urges in that way Mm. so then we try to help people see there's another way and there's, there's this way of acceptance. And from a Christian perspective, that kind of relates to people. That's more familiar because they think, okay, you know, God, God's will. And it doesn't just mean give up and he's just going to, you know, swing me around however he wants to. But that there's some meaning to this. There is a purpose to my struggle here. And maybe I can learn how to view this urge and I can learn how to deal with these feelings and not always try to control them. But, but instead, instead of getting worked up that I have it to say, all right, what if I go forward in the life that in my valued life and the life that Christ is leading me on? What if I just keep moving forward and giving less attention to this frustration that I have about this behavior? And instead, I'm going to commit, I'm going to use all these strategies, I'm going to commit to those things, not get so worked up about it. And then we find that the urge can start to go away on its own. Mm. And, you know, one of my clients talked about this, too. And she's been, she's been with me for several months. And she said, you know what, I, I've thought about this urge. And this applies to Temperance and some of the the big virtues that I've, I'm striving for in my faith to saying no to things, to building self control, mm. um, to really what she does during the time of Lent, where she's practicing more just kind of sacrificial living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She is able to apply some of these therapy lessons to other areas of her life that maybe were more self indulgent before, mm-hmm. and building really good habits while going along in this struggle.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I. Uh, boy, that rings so so true. That's so good what you're sharing there. You know, and as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about um, you know as as clinicians, as professionals, as Christian counselors. I think we work very hard to create an office space where people can be unfiltered and not judged. It needs to be a place where there's grace and there's this uh, unconditional positive regard, regardless, regardless of what it is a person, you know, needs to sort of bring out in the open to process. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is if a person is in that safe space where there isn't any perceived condemnation coming at them and it can be. You know, that can be just transparent. I've, I've never witnessed the impulse of a person in that safe place being really overtaken by a BFRB. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I, what I'm thinking as you're, as you're explaining that is, you know, uh, I don't know what your professional schedule is like. Uh, most of my clients rotate on a bi-weekly basis. I do see some on a weekly basis. I do have monthly clients. Uh, so that's a gap. You know, in time uh, for them when it comes to being in the office with another person who can professionally step into their life and offer them perspective from a point of acceptance, security, significance. Mm -hmm. But it's an invitation to prayer in the times in between, you know, for people who have a Christian faith, who have that connection with the creator God through Jesus Christ, because Mm -hmm. You know what you're talking about. There being able to to get that out to think about it; those aha moments are are guaranteed, and I would even say elevated. You know, even more when God's presence, His Spirit, is allowed to come to the forefront of a person's mind. And so that's that's super powerful. You know what you just described to us, and if I can, let's by way of of maybe landing our conversation. So let's talk then about. Um, you know, what, what's a person to do if they have experienced a lot of, of guilt or shaming in their life, a a bit of condemnation, and we're going to shift from the adult, uh, you know, the way that our, that our inner narrative can really mess with us. And let's talk about parents now. Mm -hmm. So, so let's shift and, and based on what you just said and, and sort of my, my observation, what are some do's and don'ts for parents? I think that's, Pretty important that we discuss that, uh, you know, for parents who are who are recognizing, okay, there's this, there's a BFRB that is manifesting here with my child. So, other than you know seeking some really skilled professional help, what are some do's and don'ts day by day in the home that you would suggest?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think when parents are googling or they're listening to a podcast, then they're on the lookout for things like this. So, the first thing I'll say is, don't jump on it right away. Just Mm -hmm. kind of observe for a bit. Don't overreact because that we can tend to say, oh no, if I don't do something right now, this is going to turn into a huge problem that's going to affect them for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And the first step is maybe just observe and figure out if the behavior is a problem. Are they just picking at their nails before a test? Or is it something that you're noticing day to day? And are they Mm -hmm. bleeding Mm -hmm. and needing band aids? So that kind of line of severity that we had talked about earlier. And I think parents also, maybe before listening to a podcast like this, they may already be in the cycle of nagging. And so parents should have some self-compassion there too, as well. Say, oh, that's normal. (laughs) I nagged at my kid. Now I know maybe I, maybe I should pull back. Maybe I should observe and break this cycle of nagging to stop and recognize that maybe this is really difficult for them to stop or that they don't even realize that they're doing it. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Second step would be to be very supportive. So social support is what we call it in in the therapy world when treating these behaviors, social support. So the parent should be as encouraging as possible. Um, Someone who has educated themselves about the situation, someone who knows the techniques um, that work for interfering so done a little bit of research what what could get in the way Mm -hmm. Um, maybe you know at the homework table we've got a fidget for them instead of their hands so offering encouragement and bringing up the times really gently that they're noticing that this behavior is happening and then offering kind of that replacement behavior instead Mm -hmm. instead of just saying stop 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 or even shaming why would you do that? Why, why can't you stop? Those kinds of things create shame in a child. And so it's not too late if that's already been the parent's approach. Just pull back from that a bit and be very gentle. Because mm-hmm. this could be something that they don't even know that they're doing or that is really inwardly mm-hmm. distressing to them because they can't stop. And I would say talk to them and ask, how can I point this out to you? Because you might notice it all the time. You might not notice it. How can I? point this out to you in a way that doesn't annoy you, this may be secret. So maybe parents have a special code. If a child's picking their lips at the table, mm. maybe the parent might hand them hand them their other utensil as a reminder mm. to keep a utensil in both hands. Okay. So then they're bringing it into awareness and they're also inviting the child to engage in some stimulus control there. Or let's say there's uh, a child that is pulling the hair in front of the TV. Oh, I can see you're pulling. Let me grab your hat here you go, stick your baseball hat on Mm -hmm. or I'll go grab your fuzzy blanket. And spouses can do this too. Um, If there's somebody important in your life, child or not, you can help them to block the behavior in -hmm. really gentle ways. Mm -hmm. And then you can introduce the idea of working on it. Well, why don't we track? Why don't we see when's the time that that you pull your hair the most? And I've sent kids to school with a little notebook before. And if they notice themselves pulling their hair, they'll make a little tally mark. And they talk with their parent at the end of the day, because their parent has now backed off and said, this is, it's not a huge deal. We're just going to figure out what are the times it's happening Mm -hmm. and not. We're Mm going to think of ways to help you to block that behavior. And then let's say the behavior is decreasing to celebrate it, to be really encouraging to say, all right, we're having a pizza night because you've been working so hard at this. I can see that there's some hair growing back. I'm really proud of you. And not to get too, discouraged when there's slip-ups, but to really celebrate the, the goals that are reached.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's good. That's so good. Thank you so much. Our, our guest today has been Dr. Natalie Brian. Natalie, we, we have listeners throughout the U.S., but it's specifically uh, there in the Midwest, you know, you're located in Nebraska. Uh, for listeners there, where can people learn more about what you do and where you're located? Uh, remind us again.
0: Yeah. So Immaculate Heart of Mary Counseling Center. We're in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the website is immaculateheartcounseling.org.
1: Yeah. So helpful. And uh, for listeners too, as well, Natalie, you and I are going to uh, group up here after the recording and then any any sort of really good uh, resources that can get a person directed in uh, in the way they mean to go with this as far as either personally addressing BFRBs or with their children, uh, we'll be sure to transfer any of those uh resources that you may have that you've found helpful onto our show notes that uh, will be posted along with this particular episode of the resolutions podcast so uh thanks so much for joining us today this has been a a wealth of information i've i've uh you know that we we don't have a camera on uh during uh during our recordings but i have taken three pages of notes <laughs> wonderful
0: That's while what I we like. While we've talked
1: so uh Thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. We've appreciated uh, learning with you today.
0: You're welcome. I've been so happy to share.
1: Hey, friends. This is Michael Gum, co-host of the Resolutions Podcast. We hope you've been encouraged by Chris's interview with Dr. Natalie Bride. To find more information and resources from today's episode, please be sure to check out the show notes on our website, resolutionsofwv.com. As always, if you want to stay connected with us, be sure to subscribe to our show on the platform of your choice. If you found today's episode helpful, please share it with your friends and consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're reluctant to do so, hit us up. Let us know what we can be doing better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again when our next episode drops.